I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, it's in the New Testament. And if you're using the red Bibles in the chairs around you, you'll find our passage today on page 976. If you've been around with us over the last weeks, you know we've been spending time working our way through verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1. And we have been reminded that that's in the original language that Paul wrote, one long sentence. All of those words, all of those uh, uh, verses are one long sentence. And it's almost as if Paul gets to the end of verse 14 and you can hear him catch his breath after saying all these wonderful things. But it is interesting that our passage for today, verses 15 through 23, is also in the original language, one sentence. Our ESV translations actually try to get at that. They put the whole thing in just two sentences. But in the original language, it's actually one long sentence that Paul has for us. This prayer that he uttered for the Ephesian Christians and through the Holy Spirit for us as well. So listen as I read chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 15 through 23. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the, work, excuse me, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that the same Holy Spirit that enabled Paul to write these words, the same Holy Spirit about whom Paul was writing, would be at work in our, here in our midst even now, helping to enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might see the hope to which you have called us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that one of my favorite movies is Shawshank Redemption. It's a great movie, although probably not the best movie for some of our youngest viewers to see. It is the story of Andy Dufresne. Andy Dufresne was arrested and accused of a double murder and eventually is convicted and sentenced to two life terms in prison in the Shawshank prison. His conviction was mostly on circumstantial evidence. And the movie tells the story of what it's like for Andy and his fellow prisoners to live inside of the Shawshank prison. We watched as the story unfolds, Andy gaining approval of his prisoner friends as well as of the warden himself as the warden 
gives him various things to do for him inside of the prison. There's one particular scene uh, that always catches my attention in watching that movie. It's a day when Andy went to the warden's office and nobody was there. Not even the warden himself was in the office. So Andy let himself in and then locked the door behind him so that nobody else could get entrance into the warden's office. He saw there an old record player on the desk and so he took the record player as well as the stack of records and he turned on the PA system for the entire prison and took the microphone and put it right up next to the record player. He took the record on top which happened to be The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart and he blasted the record at full sound so that the entire prison... All of the speakers around the entire prison echoing Mozart. If you remember the movie, everybody stops what they're doing. The workers, the prisoners. And their eyes and their hearts and their attentions are turned up to these speakers as the sound comes over the top of them. They are transported to a different place. They are transported to a place of hope even though they probably couldn't understand the words that were being sung because they were in a different language. Well, eventually, as you might imagine, we have law enforcement officers that work in our jails here. They would tell you that doesn't go over very well. And so the warden and the the guards eventually broke into the warden's office and grabbed Andy and took the record player from the, the microphone And Andy was ordered to spend two weeks in the hole, which meant solitary confinement in the worst possible circumstances. After two weeks, Andy is able to rejoin the general population of the prison. And the scene shows us as he comes back into the general population, he joins a group of his friends who are having lunch in the cafeteria at one of the tables. And Andy comes and sits down in their midst and then the conversation goes something like this. One of them asks him, so was it worth it? And Andy responded, easiest time I've ever done. One of the guys says, no time in the hole is easy. And Andy responds, well, I had Mr. Mozart to keep me company. And somebody at the table said, wait, what? They let you have a record player in the hole? And Andy said, no, it's in my mind. It's in my heart. That's the beauty of music. They can't take it away from you. Haven't you ever felt that way about music? And at that point, Andy's best friend in the prison, a man named Red, spoke up. Well, I played a mean harmonica back in the day, but I lost interest. It doesn't make no sense here in prison. And Andy responded, but here is where it makes the most sense. Here is where you need it the most, so you don't forget. Red, looking at him, quizzically says, Forget what? What are you talking about? And he says, so you don't forget that there's hope. Red responded by saying, hope? Hope? What are you talking about? Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing.
Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use in a place like this. And you better get used to that idea. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope will drive a person insane. There is no place in a place like this for hope. I want you to know that that directly contradicts what Paul says to us in this passage. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Ephesian Christians, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, so that you can have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. Paul says, hope is not a dangerous thing. Hope is not a thing that will cause us to go insane. Hope is not something that has no value for us. Hope is the very thing that we need in this life. Hope is the very thing that we must have. Hope is the thing that empowers us to live in the midst of such a broken world. As we understand what Paul is saying here in these verses... And we think about what was said in that fictional movie, Shawshank Redemption, we realize that the word hope has different meanings. In our English language, it has a different meaning than how the Bible speaks of hope. In our, when we talk about hope, when we use hope in our English language, it almost always has the sense of being uncertain. I hope it doesn't snow this week. I hope I do well on my test. I hope the doctor's phone call doesn't bring bad news. Almost always when we talk and use that word hope, it has this sense of, I don't know and I'm not sure, but I, I, I hope, I hope, I hope. That's different than how the Bible uses the word hope in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The biblical idea of hope is actually the exact opposite of that. The idea of biblical hope has the sense of certainty about the future because of what has taken place already in the past. And you can see that even by how Paul begins our passage this morning. All of these wonderful spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that he has talked about in verses 3 through 14. And he comes at the end of that. And then what does he say? For this reason, at the beginning of verse 15, because of all of this work that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have done for us, already accomplished and secured. For that reason, because of that great truth of in the past, he prays for the Ephesians to have the spirit of knowledge and revelation open up their hearts so that they can see and know the hope that is sure and certain. Paul prays for the Ephesians to have their eyes opened so that they can know this hope, that they can see this hope to which God has called them because he knows that it's absolutely necessary for them to have this hope. We as human beings are wired to need hope. And when we don't have hope, we are filled with fear and anxiety and sadness and despair and a sense of defeat. 
But when we are filled with this biblical sense of hope, it changes how we deal with everything that comes to us in this life. As we talked about last week in looking at the last part of verses 3 through 14, we reminded ourselves of how the fact that we might be confused, we might be uncertain, we might be unsure, we might be filled with fear and anxiety, but we are not crushed, we are not driven to the point of despair. Because our hope is not in our circumstances, it's in the God who he is described in verses 3 through 14. So today, Paul's going to give us a little bit more about the content of that hope. The hope that we have, this biblical hope that he's talking about, is not some wishful, empty, bare, shallow hope and something that is unknown, uncertain, and nebulous. The hope that he's speaking about is a hope that has substantial content. And Paul mentions several aspects of that hope that he wants the Ephesians and us to have this morning. And the first thing that he says is that this hope that is ours in Christ helps us to understand our position. Look again at verse 18. He's praying for them to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened that they may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, I just want to point out quickly that this idea of having hope is connected to this idea of inheritance. That's what he says there in verse 18. We talked a lot last week about this idea of inheritance. And so I just want to briefly mention it again today. Paul's continuing his thought here as he moves on into this next section. And he continues to talk about this idea of an inheritance. Notice what he says. We talked about this last week. But notice what he says about whose inheritance this is. He wants them to know the hope to which God has called them. What are the riches of his Glorious inheritance. Now, who's his? If you look, you just trace back to find where the antecedent of that is. You'll go all the way back to the beginning of verse 17. And there, Paul begins by saying, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. That's the his that is in verse 17. 18. He is speaking about God's inheritance. And we talked last week about how that should be shocking to us. The idea that God has an inheritance. And as we talked about last week, it's not only God's inheritance, but notice what we are told about who the inheritance is. It is, he says in verse 18, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Not inheritance for the saints. It is God's inheritance in the saints. The point that is being made here is the same thing we talked about last week. That we, if you are in Christ this morning, you and I are God's inheritance. We are a glorious inheritance, as Paul says here. Which, as we reminded ourselves last week, jives with the Old Testament language of God describing His people as His treasured possession, His heritage, His inheritance. This is how God views us as His people. This is the position that we are in as God's people. And this is the reason why we have hope. So, do we live our lives in light of this hope, of this truth, of our position as God's inheritance. If so, when we are in those moments when our sin is painfully aware to us, 
when we have been brought to a sense of conviction, a knowledge of our, our fallenness and our brokenness, whether that is by God doing it internally and making us aware of it, or being brought to us externally by other brothers and sisters in Christ, and in those moments when we are bearing the weight of our sin and we are filled with the voices of shame and guilt because of what we have once again given into. In those moments when we hear the doubts, could God actually love me such a sinner? Could God actually accept me and forgive me? I give in to the sin again and again and again. And Paul's saying, the hope that we have, the certain hope that we have, is that we are God's inheritance, His glorious inheritance. That voice must ring more loudly in our ears than the voices of shame and guilt and doubt. Paul gives us another aspect of this hope that he wants the Ephesian Christians to understand, but us as well. It's the idea of power. That's what he goes on to say in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now, first of all, notice whose power is he speaking of? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Again, you have to go back to the beginning of verse 17 to know who the his is that he's referring to. It is God himself. Who is he that has this power? It is God's power, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. It is his great power. Power. And notice, Paul describes this power, the kind of power that it is. In verse 19, he heaps word upon word upon word to give us a sense of this power. What is the immeasurable greatness of this power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Paul is layering word upon word to show us this power, describing it to us as immeasurable that it's greatness, that it is working, that it is great, that it is mighty. This power is unlike anything that the world has to offer. It is a sovereign, unstoppable, effectual, and perfect prayer. And Paul knows that as he's writing those words, it's hard for us to comprehend what that looks like. And so he decides to give them an example. He gives them an illustration. Now, if you were going to try to give an illustration or an example of the power of God, what would you use? Look at what Paul did. Look at the illustration that he uses in verses 20 and 21. This power, this immeasurable great power that he's talking about is the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every other name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Do you see the illustration? He says the power that he's talking about, God's power that he's referring to in these verses is the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It is the very same power that exalted Jesus to the right hand of the Father and established Him as exalted above all else. It's the same power that has given Jesus every rule and authority and power and dominion the name that is above every name, both now and forevermore. Now that ought to amaze you, but it ought to amaze you even more 
when you recognize the goal of that power, where that power is applied. Did you see what Paul said? And what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe? The power of God that rose Jesus from the grave and ascended Him into the heavenly places and seated Him at the right hand of the Father, giving Him all power and authority, and the name that is above every name is the same power that God uses for you. Let that sink in for a minute. And as it begins to sink in, think... Do I live in light of this hope, of this power, this power of God that is at work for me as God's child? If we lived in light of this incredible truth, it would impact how we deal with our besetting sins. When we feel like we have no power against our sin, no ability to lean and to fight and to say no to unrighteousness and yes to righteousness. In those moments when we give in because we know we're going to give in eventually, we might as well just give in now. Paul is telling us, you have the very power of God at work in you. Rather than believing the lie that we have no power to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. We will not let ourselves believe that lie. It is the immeasurable greatness of the power of God. The power that rose Jesus from the grave and ascended him to the heavens themselves. The great might of the sovereign creator and father in heaven who is at work in us. Another way that we would live in light of this hope if we truly understood and grasped it, if it gripped our hearts, is that when we are in the midst of suffering, we would not lose hope. God's sovereign, immeasurable, mighty power, the same power that enabled the Lord Jesus Christ Himself to persevere in His work on the cross and then rose Him from the grave is the same power that's at work in us even when we are suffering. Although our suffering may be difficult and it may seem unbearable even to the point of us giving in, we will know that God is at work through it just as He was at work in the greatest suffering that has ever happened, Jesus Christ. Death on the cross. It won't make it easy. But it will give us hope in the midst of it. The power and the glory of God being displayed in the suffering of Jesus. The power of God enabling Jesus to persevere through it. And that same power is at work in me. How much more so will he enable me to persevere through my suffering? There's a last thing here that Paul mentions to the Ephesians about this hope and another aspect of the hope. It's a perspective that he wants them to have. And he gets at it in verses 22 and verse 23. And he put all things under Jesus's feet and gave him Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Part of the hope that Paul wants the Ephesian Christians and us to know is this new perspective that is ours. How we see ourselves, how we view ourselves, this new identity which is ours. What does Paul say about who we are? He gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. The church, God's people. The ones for whom Christ came and did all of those things we've been thinking about in verses 3 through 14. The called out ones. And notice what Paul says about this church. I want to say before we look again at verse 23 that looking at various commentators this past week and several in particular, uh, very good commentators, scholars, uh, experts in the Greek language, experts in Paul's teaching. One of them specifically said that this phrase here in verse 23 that describes the church, that describes us, is one of the very most difficult clauses to understand in the entire book of Ephesians. The way it's put together, the the syntax of the words and the words themselves. And we can understand that even if we just read it in the English, he's talking about the fact that Christ has been given to the church, which is his body, the fullness of... Of him who fills all in all. This description of God's people as the church, as the fullness of Jesus. The church, he says, is Jesus' body. And that body, he says, is the fullness of Jesus. If you're a Christian, If you're in Christ this morning, then you are the church. You are the body of Christ. And he says, you are the fullness of Jesus. Now, what in the world does that mean? I think what Paul is getting at here is much more of a passive sense than an active sense. Paul is talking about something that we are, not something that we do. He's not saying here in this little phrase at the end of verse 23 that Christians, the church, does something to fill up Jesus. I mean, after all, he says that Jesus is the one who fills all in all. And I think what he's saying here is not something that we do, but something that we are. Jesus does something to fill up his church. He fills up his body, the church, in a special way by sending the Holy Spirit and giving his gifts and spiritual blessings and graces to his people so that we are filled up in Christ and made full and complete in Christ Jesus. We're going to come back to this in the coming weeks and months as Paul actually says very similar things in several other places. If you look just on the probably the next page in your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 17 through 19. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He gets at it again in chapter 4, verses 11 and following. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then just one other place where Paul was writing to a different church, the church in Colossae. 
He said in Colossians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition. According to the elemental spirits of the world. Not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are in Christ this morning, you are in Christ. You are His body. Christ is your head. And you are the fullness of Christ. Because He sends His Holy Spirit to fill you with all of His gifts and graces. That ought to fill us. That perspective of who we are. That perspective of who we have been made in Christ should give us hope. And so the question is, do we live in light of that perspective? Do we live in light of this hope? If we do, the more that we have this hope of this perspective of how God views us, how God sees us, of who we are in Christ, of what God has done for us, the more that we will start to look more and more like Paul says the Ephesians look. Remember what he said in verse 15, back in chapter 1 of Ephesians. For this reason, because I have heard... Of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. The more that this hope grips our imaginations and attentions and hearts. The more that our hearts are opened and enlightened to see this hope. This perspective that is ours. The more that our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be strengthened. That people outside of us will look and see the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. A faith that even in the midst of incredible difficult life circumstances is a faith that is on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. That faith that we have will grow and strengthen because of who it's in. But notice Paul doesn't just say that he's heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says he's also heard about the love they have. And see what he says there. I I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love. And it's not just a general love. What does he say? It's the love that you have for the people that you like. That's not what it says. It's the love that you have for the people that you're the most comfortable around. That's not what it says. It's a love for the people Who look and believe exactly the same thing that you do. That's not what he says. He says, I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love that you have toward all the saints. All of God's people. As their faith in the Lord Jesus Jesus Christ is strengthened and grows. They showed their faith. They lived out their faith. They lived out the hope that they have in God by loving one another. Not just some. Not just the ones they liked. Not just the ones that looked like them. Not just the ones that believed exactly the same things they loved. Not just the ones who voted the same way they did. Not just the ones that they're comfortable being around. But they love All the saints, those who are in different social groups, those who are in different financial groups, those who are in different vocational groups. This is a love that transcends superficial differences. 
Can I just finish by giving you one very practical, tangible way that you could try to do that this week? You do realize that verses 15 through 23 is a prayer. Paul's praying to God for the Ephesians Christians. And he's praying that the Holy Spirit would open their the eyes of their hearts, so that they might understand these wonderful hope that is theirs. And then he describes this hope by, like how we've talked about today. But this is a prayer that he's praying for the Ephesians, and he's telling them about that prayer. When was the last time that you prayed something like this for your brothers and sisters in Christ? We think about maybe praying this for ourselves, and we should do that as well. But maybe this week... You would actually take time to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe even in name, maybe even ones that you're not sure you like too well, and to pray this prayer for them, for their benefit, that they too might understand the hope that Paul is talking about. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize how hard it is to live day in and day out, week in and week out, with the kind of hope that Paul is describing here in chapter 1. So we pray for ourselves, Father, that the Holy Spirit would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might know with certainty the hope to which you have called us. And we pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters in Christ in this room and around this city and around the world, that they too would have their eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they, along with us, would know the hope that is theirs. And I pray, Father, that as we meditate on that this week, that you would cause us to live our lives in light of this hope, of this truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is it that makes the Lord's Supper work? If you're theologically minded, another way you could put it is, what makes the Lord's Supper effectual? What makes it a a means of grace? Well, the Bible tells us that it's not uh, some kind of correct wording that I utter in just the right way over the elements. Uh, It's it's not the prayer of consecration that we'll offer in just a minute, uh, offering thanksgiving to the Lord and asking Him to use the Lord's Supper. It's not the holiness of the one administering it, for which you should be very thankful. And it's also not the seriousness or the holiness of the participants. So what is it? What is it that makes the Lord's Supper work? It's the Holy Spirit. As we come in faith, it may be a weak faith, barely clinging to the Lord Jesus, but a faith that is real and genuine... The Holy Spirit is at work as we come in faith and we eat and we drink so that we are pointed to Christ once again and we are strengthened in our souls through the work of the Spirit to believe this hope that is sure and certain and ours in Christ Jesus. That's the reason why our denomination requires that there be a profession of faith before someone comes to partake in the Lord's Supper. There needs to be faith as we come to the table. The Holy Spirit works through faith as we come in faith. And so if you're here this morning and you have made a public profession of faith and connected yourself to the Lord's church, 
Then eat and drink and be reminded and know that the Holy Spirit is at work strengthening us so that we can go out and believe this hope that is ours to be believed. Let's pause and ask him to do this and to thank him for giving it to us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for this means of grace. We pray that as we eat and drink, as we meditate on this truth, that you would point us to our Savior. And we pray, Father, for the work of the Holy Spirit, that as we come in faith, believing and trusting in Him, that you would enable us to have a faith that is growing and strengthened through the work of your Spirit. We pray, Father, that you would help us to have a greater sense of the hope that is ours so that we might go out and live in light of it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.